Welcome to Talking Sock. I'm your host, Pete Davidson, and in this week's episode, it's all about dinosaurs. There's something about them which is completely engaging and wonderful. I'm joined by a legend in Australian puppetry, designer, writer, creative director, performer, and dinosaur lover, Philip Miller. There's something about playing God which is quite attractive, about being in charge of, of, of a whole world of little creatures. I'm so lucky to be in Yarraville in Melbourne's West in the home studio with Philip to talk about animatronics and some of the big puppets that have been jaw-droppers in the industry. Join Philip and I now, here on Talking Sock. Welcome to Talking Sock. How are you today? Very well, thanks, Pete. Thanks for coming in. It's lovely. I'm surrounded by an amazing portrait by Patricia Piccinini. There's an enormous dinosaur behind you that's made of styrofoam. You've got all this lovely art. It's a very creative household, clearly. It's really nice to be here. So I have to ask you the first question, why puppets? I'm not sure why it actually started as puppets. I've just been doing puppets for as long as I can remember. Um, my mum made my first glove puppet for me when I was quite small. It'll, um, uh, and then I started making glove puppets after that. She sewed the, the glove up on the machine and I did some decoration. Then later on I started doing all the making. There's something about playing God which is quite attractive, about being in charge of, of, of a whole world of little creatures uh, and just being in charge of the whole process of imagining making performing something is very appealing. Mm. Do you remember the puppet character that you made, your first puppet? I've got it somewhere. It's a little glove puppet, uh, like a little girl um, with a very strange hat. Um, it may have been an old woman. It's very hard to tell. It's that accurate. Uh, it's, it's, some, it's a vague little person glove puppet, which is somewhere in a box. I need to build on this because I'm literally looking over your shoulder and there's an enormous dinosaur. Why dinosaurs? Dinosaurs are the best creatures ever. <laughs> without any shadow of a doubt. Um, something profoundly appealing about monsters that actually existed that um, had enormous teeth and big claws and stomped around and were weird looking and loved dinosaurs. I've always loved dinosaurs. And this is like a Philip Miller at five years old sort of... Forever. Yeah. yeah. And my brother and I were completely obsessed and uh, he got even more obsessed with me at one stage. He got a um, paleontologist hammer for one of his birthdays, I think, and then we'd be off you know, hacking away at rocks and gathering shells from cliff faces and I got completely obsessed by it. You're one of the few people who I know who have a, you know, an obsession with something when they're five years old and they continue to have that. A lot of us sort of change and adapt to a lot of things, but you have stuck with dinosaurs and I actually really love that. But was animatronics the way you saw for you to get to making real-life dinosaurs or were there other options and you just, this is what you fell into? Fell into it. Animatronics was absolutely not the first thing. I mean, I did um, I did a show called Almost the Dinosaur with Polyglot Puppet Theatre back in 88 and they were just um, suit puppets, body puppets, and I've done stop-motion dinosaurs before that, making little wire and ball and socket armature because mm. I was really into stop-motion animation. And so animatronics has really been down the, down the path. That wasn't the first choice at all because I liked the hands-on aspect of puppetry without the intervention of devices. And so I came to animatronics via a whole range of other things, but all the first dinosaur puppets I made were, were hands-on rod puppets, suit puppets, that kind of thing. Can you tell us when you knew that puppets were your thing? Apart from the, the hand puppet, was it that moment or...? No, it actually came a bit like because I, I really thought I was going to do animation. I, I thought I was going to do stop motion. I did a lot of puppetry when I was going to Rusden doing uh, my beard there. I was doing drama and media and I focused on animation and puppetry and I thought animation was the thing and I actually was going to start doing a, a grad dip at Swinburne. They had an animation uh, grad dip course 
And I was enrolled in that, ready to go, when I was offered the job at Polyglot. Ah. And given a choice between another year of being a student after four years of a B.Ed. with no money or getting a job and doing puppets, it seemed a fairly obvious choice. Yeah, it's a no-brainer. Yeah. So Handspan and Polyglot were the two bigger companies that you were associated with. Um, and today you still kind of have an association with them. But I want to ask you specifically about Polyglot, which I understand used puppets sort of more tacitly in 1990s, in the 90s and 80s because it kind of now is in more of a children's experience, site activation type stuff. When you were involved with it, were you, you were a puppeteer or were you involved in the creative process? When I, when I joined, it was very much a puppet company. It was... Um, it was glove puppets for traditional sort of puppets and the puppeteers were sometimes behind a booth, sometimes out in the open, but mostly it was more a traditional booth style of glove puppetry with some other stuff. And then when I joined, um, Helen Lum was also working as a puppeteer then and we clicked and, and had a similar kind of idea of, of developing the puppetry and the theatre side of the company. And so we worked together, um, wrote some scripts together and... I was there for nine years developing shows. Helen and I shared the uh, artistic director's role for quite a few years. And so it was really much puppet-focused. We changed the, shifted the name to Polyglot Puppet Theatre for a number of years. And so puppetry was very much our focus. And then that changed, uh, like Sue Giles came in, like three artistic directors after me, and her focus was very much more on um, a child-centred, um, site-specific play-based experiential kind of style of theatre. So it's not based on the puppetry so much. And so that's that's moved away from what the company does. Amazing work they do now, but it's not the puppet stuff that we were doing. Um, so we've, it's it shifted. But while, while I was there, and particularly working with Helen, we did very much puppetry, puppetry, puppetry. Yesterday we had coffee uh, at a really cool place in Yarraville called The Corner Store. And we were talking about how you started out in children's theatre. And there was something that was said to you that was really profound about children's theatre and your sort of attitudes towards it in the early days. I would love it if you could tell our listeners that because I think it's really cool and I think it means a lot, particularly for puppeteers, where children's theatre is sort of the majority of our work. Mm. Can I let you elaborate on that? Well, yes, it was after I'd left, I'd graduated from Rosden. And one of my lecturers in puppetry at Ruston was Greg Temple, who was a fantastic puppeteer. He was a very generous, charming man. He was wonderful at, at getting you to do, develop new ideas and I had a great time working with him. And I th- imagined I was going to go off and do the animation course. And then I was offered the job and I called him to talk about it. And I remember saying, oh, look, it's, it's just uh, kids' puppetry. And he was very stern and put me in my place saying, how dare you demean a, the audience of children and B, puppetry, <laughs> that, that if you're going to do it, you need to do it with an awareness that this is important and valuable and unless you have that understanding, don't dare go into it, that you have to go into it appreciating the importance of it because often you're the first theatrical experience for those children so that needs to be profound and strong and competent. Mm. So he really insisted that I take it very seriously, that that I don't, that I didn't treat it as like a second best kind of gig. It's like, no, no, this is an important role. And so I took that on board, that, mm. that you're doing um, puppetry for children is valuable work. It makes a difference to those children. It is, it's it's an important part of developing their imaginations. It's an important part of introducing them to theatre, the possibilities of theatre and the imagination. I, 
I was very grateful that he was. He really told me, and and I, to you. yeah, I, I took it on board, and I, f- I felt that way ever since. That that when you hear people demeaning puppetry or demeaning work for children as being kind of second best, or that puppetry for adults is somehow inherently superior, it's like it's just bull. You know that it, you need to value your audience, and if you choose to work for children, fantastic. If you choose to work for adults, fantastic. If you do work for a more general audience, whatever. But but the notion that there's some kind of tier system of superior work because your audience is older, I just think is a, is a fallacy. You come from an education background, which I think is really cool because, you know, I, if you look at, if someone looks at you on paper, they must go, he must do engineering, he must have done maths at university, but you have a Bachelor of Education. That's really cool because, you, you know, when we're teachers, we talk about pitching to, mm. to the kids and the audience. And I think actually writing for children's theatre is possibly one of the toughest gigs there is. And I'm trying to write my show now. How, how when you were at Polyglot, what was it like to be in the state of mind of a child's play and how did you get those, those things written? What was the process? It was trying to find stories that would, that would give you many puppet opportunities for a start. But then it was also based on what we saw around us to a certain extent. I remember when we were touring with the early shows of Polyglot, you'd often see um, schools, some of the country schools you go to, they'd have a, a little container of tadpoles um, uh, on the mantelpiece or whatever, on the, on the window. And so Helen and I wrote a show about tadpoles and, this, and it seemed a, it was a neat way to have a whole series of interesting characters. And then we, you know, it was a story about growing up and about accepting yourself and accepting change and all the rest of it. But it was a chance to make cool puppets. But it was based on seeing things in the kindergartens and in the primary schools that we could incorporate into a show. And then some of the other shows came out of personal experience. Mostly for me it was a chance, like, what's going to give us an opportunity to, to make some cool things? <laughs> Um, but th- not always, but, but generally that was, that was what drove me. How do you know when a children's show is delivering, is working, is making, you know, an impact on a young audience? I think you know when they're focused, you know when they're paying attention. I mean, I've done shows when um, you feel like it's going okay and then a, a, a fire truck drove past and most of the audience got up and ran to the window <laughs> to stare outside. And I thought, well, the show was going okay, but you can't top that. I mean, basically, you just sort of go, right, fine, we'll let that happen and then we'll move back into the show. Right. Um, and then there's been other shows that weren't going so well, like when I was um, very early, Polyglot show, because it was a circus show and at one stage I was in a lion suit and it was just not going well and my lion was attacked and had his tail pulled off. Oh. It was not going. I, had, I tried bursting to tears but but it was a fairly vicious audience and, and so they took that as an opportunity to just basically dismember <laughs> Yeah, so they didn't go so well. Um, but that was uncommon. If they're absorbed, you, you know it. Because if they're not absorbed, they're going to be chatting, they're going to be distracted, they're going to be looking elsewhere. And uh, I, I love it when they're completely able to buy into it. And um, we had an example of that where there was – I saw a mother who was concerned that her child was a bit uneasy about the puppets. Mm. And and we saw, you know, because we work in kindergarten, you someone see them dropping off the kids. And the mother said, look, it's okay, the puppets aren't real. You know, you'd be okay. They're not real. And we did our show and there was a little dog in the show and it was barking and carrying on. And this kid was so confused because she said, you know, it, it is real. I could see, I, you could talk to the dog. What do you mean it's not real? And so th- it's a bit tricky then to explain like theatrical reality versus, you know, real, real. But that kid was so absorbed in it that it completely believed that the puppet was, you know, responding to her. That was a good thing, I guess, in that case. So, oh, yeah. As far as I'm concerned, it's a good thing. That and also it, it may, then gets the... Um, the notion about, I suppose, the power of theatre, the power to, to tell stories in a way which can transform. Do you think you have developed some kind of formula of what 
what is a great children's show based on what you've done with Polyglot and other shows? Mm, nope. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> no, because you, 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 you take a guess on things, you think this will be amazing and it doesn't work and stuff that you think, oh, this is going to be... Mm, and all of a sudden people like it. I find it extremely hard to, to, to pick what's going to work. You, go, you can go with what you, what you enjoy, you can make sure it's technically competent or you can make sure it's well made, but it doesn't necessarily work. I've, I've built stuff which I thought was amazing and then been chucked out, you know, in rehearsal and stuff that I thought was completely half-assed, which has turned out to be the best thing in the show. And you go, oh, I didn't. It, I find it very – that could actually speak to my inability to, <laughs> to, to pick things or it just might be that it's a very difficult thing to, to work out what's going to kick off well. Let's move on from Polygot then because it's Walking with Dinosaurs that got creature technology started, I believe. Yes. And it's been dinosaurs for you since the beginning. Yeah. So you created this sort of army of dinosaur representatives of an ancient species. Were the puppets each unique in the build or was it kind of the same mechanics all with a different skin for all the different dinosaurs? How many dinosaurs were there? Uh, I think we built 15 for the first show. There were five... Six suits and a dozen of the big chassis-based things, I think, from memory. The basic principle of the quadruped, the walking quadruped dinosaur, though that was the same principle, mostly because we had a ridiculously short time to make them. We had a year from empty warehouse to opening at Ace Arena uh, on, <laughs> in Sydney. So we built them in Melbourne and then shipped them all up to Sydney to open. Wow. And we took us six months to build the first one. Uh, so we built the first suit and the first chassis-based dinosaur in six months of, of careful R&D, which was a lot of guesswork. And then we built the remaining cast in, the, in that following six months, which was chaotic. So the basic chassis propulsion system, walking um, system, was the same for all the chassis-based stuff and the suits were all essentially the same thing with variations. There wasn't time to make, to redesign the whole thing. We had to find a way that worked for a suit and a way that worked for a, for a chassis-based one and that's what drove most of it. But then, having said that, some were inflatable, some were solid, some had different internals like the Brachiosaurus had a lot more inflatable components because it had to be huge and light and the T-Rex had inflatable components. Yeah, so there was variations obviously within but the fundamentals of how we built them um, were you know, a, a chassis mechanism and then dressed in a different way. So as a dinosaur fan, I want, I want you to take me back to when the first dinosaur was finished. What did that look like? How was that day? Tell me about that day. It was, well, we actually had a launch. It was, we had to have a dinosaur ready and a suit ready for a, a launch, which was launching to bookers, you know, people who were going to be um, chasing the show, various interested people, investors. And so we had, we'd booked the, uh, one of the film studios down at Docklands because we had a work, the, the workshop was at Docklands at the time. And we had to uh, drive the, it was a Taurosaurus, had to drive it across the Docklands, across the film studios into the studio, which was very amusing. Cool. Uh, having a dinosaur chuffing along outside. <laughs> um, and it, it, was, it was fantastic. And it was particularly good because we had um, Tim Haynes, who was the producer of the BBC show, Walking with Dinosaurs. And of course, BBC were involved because they were royalty participants. It was their property. And so it was licensed. And he'd come over to see this launch. And he said afterwards he was quite convinced it was going to be a dog. He thought it wasn't going to work. He, had, he thought we were mad to even attempt it and was kind of amused that we were attempting it because it was obviously a stupid thing to do. And um, then he came and saw it. Oh, you did? Oh, you, you, it's, it's walking around. Oh. And he was, he was actually really surprised because he genuinely didn't think it was going to work. Yeah. And it did. And we were also extremely pleased because, you know, there was a chance it was going to be a catastrophe 
and instead we had, you know, we you know, got some kids in, we had a whole lot of enthusiastic parents and they were gobsmacked. It was wonderful. Ah. You know, had all this, you know, lots of smoke and backlighting and all the rest of it and it looked amazing. So once we had that going, it's like, oh, we can do this. And then we went, oh, God, we've got another dozen of these to make in the next six months and so it was insane yeah. from there. But we knew that the fundamentals were going to work. That must feel good. But I, I also want to know, have you ever done anything like this before this show? No one had. No one, no one had tried it because I think it's one of those things where if, if no one's tried it before, you need to go, maybe it's a good reason. Maybe it's a really dumb idea or it's going to be really complicated. And it was. It was really, really complicated and it was um, a bit mad. But if um, we hadn't been asked to try, then it wouldn't, it wouldn't have happened. You had to actually push past what, we, what you thought was possible in order to make something um, unique. And can you tell me kind of how creature technology, apart from walking with dinosaurs, how did that begin? Tell us about that beginning. Well, um, Sunny Childers was approached by um, Billy May and Malcolm Cook to um, develop the dinosaurs for the show. They had the idea that they were going to do a live dinosaur show and um, Billy's initial idea was to take existing, like earth-moving equipment essentially or you know, industrial equipment because he'd you know, gone past building sites and thought how a cherry picker looked like a dinosaur and how these cranes and things looked like dinosaurs. And he thought maybe you could just take those and dress them and then go to each new city and hire the gear and costume it with a dinosaur outfit and make it work like that. And they presented. They actually tried that with uh, the first. It was known lovingly as Madge. Was the first um, dinosaur that was made built on a cherry picker, which when you look at it now, it's like, oh my lord! The cherry but, pickers in drag. Yeah, it yeah. was. It was. <laughs> it was an interesting looking thing, and so we sort of laughed about it. But the thing was that got the. Uh, interest and attention of Jerry Ryan, who was uh, an investor in the project, and if he hadn't backed it and backed the company, it would never have happened. So he said, oh, I can see that might work. You need some help, obviously. Um, so Sonny was approached and he went, yeah, nah, that's not going to work. And he'd been recently working with uh, John Cox uh, up in Queensland on Pan. And for Pan, they built this amazing crocodile, like yes. absolutely stunning hydraulically powered crocodile. And Trevor Ty was the main engineer on that gig. And... Um, Richard Muick is a puppeteer on it. Um, there's a whole lot of people who end up working on Walking with Dinosaurs who worked on this crocodile. And when you see footage of it, it's stunning. Like it is just outstanding. It's massive. It's incredibly well controlled. It's pretty fluid because of this hydraulic system that Trevor developed and because of the beautiful sculpting and all the rest of it. Uh, but it was cut from the film. It was never actually in the film, which was... What? Oh, it's just one of those classic things when, when the shoot was scheduled in a way which meant it wasn't available when they needed it and blah, blah, blah. And it just didn't get seen. So there's still there's some footage out there. And if you track it down online, the amazing crocodile from Pan. So from that, um, suddenly you got Trev on board and a few other key people like Pete Luscombe, um, mechanism maker, um, amazing builder, um, and a number of others who came on board to build a first prototype and use that the the idea of the, the Trev Drolix, like Trev's version of the hydraulic mm. system, to get this fluid movement. The idea being that traditional hydraulics, like industrial equipment, is very precise and robust. But in performance, you don't necessarily want precision as much as you want fluidity and, and eloquence and flow. Mm. And so he basically dumbed down the hydraulics making it a bit leaky and spongy. And the sponginess meant you could overlap movements rather than having specific 
movements from A to B to within a millimetre or two, it would kind of be a bit spongy. So a bit more organic. More Much more organic. So, and it was like designing a, a, an industrial machine as if it was a dancer rather than being a robot. So you had something which had this flow and bounce and everything, in, in the whole, across the creature, everything influenced everything else. So the movements would overlap in a kind of really nicely layered way. And that, yeah. that was the secret to getting this organic, realistic movement. Okay, so we go from walking with dinosaurs and then I want to get into the specifics of approaching a build like Kong. Mm. I mean, this show had two stage managers and two books because there were that many cues and calls to be made for each element of the show. The puppet is sort of a statue of sorts with puppeteers manning so many elements of the creature and underneath this shell at the bottom is an army of puppeteers that allow the, tr- the puppet to track mm. the arena floor. How do you approach a build like Kong? What are the components of Kong that are unique and perhaps the most challenging? That process took years, like years. I started, there was mock-ups and things being built back in 2008, I think was the first thing. Um, like we built the, the dinosaurs in 2006 and the, the notion of doing something with Kong came up not that long afterwards and, and development happened over a number of years. Mm. A number of prototypes built and different approaches tried. And Daniel Crane was the original director of the show and he had suggested, like there been discussions as to whether we're going to do different scales of Kong, whether we're going to do different variations, different types of things. And once the decision was made that no, it was going to be a Kong who was full size, that determined a whole lot of uh, approaches. Once you've gone with that as an idea, that kind of sets, literally sets the stage because the stage had to be torn down and rebuilt to facilitate that. Um, so the initial prototypes and the initial testing had to do with making a giant marionette which also had ground-based puppeteers and then a layer of uh, both pneumatic controls and hydraulic controls and servo-based controls over the top of that. So you had your dozen puppeteers on stage, you had your automation controlling stuff in the marionette section, like, you know, the overhead, and then you had your external voodoo puppeteers at the back of the theatre watching and operating all the um, facial, head, hand. How many puppeteers are we talking here? A dozen on stage, four at the back, and then automation as well. Huh. Okay, so I'm just overwhelmed hearing that. So in terms of the synchronising of a single arm gesture or movement, how do these puppeteers work to get that level of control? You have a puppeteer who's calling some of the moves. Uh, Jacob Williams was calling a lot of that um, from the... He's watching the stage, like the back of the theatre watching, and he might call a move. And so a performer on stage knows that they have to track, say, track the foot forward a certain way. The, that'll be in sync with the automation, which is moving the puppet across the stage a certain distance. And then that might require like a shoulder move, which might be in the automation. But then there's also perhaps a little twerk at the backside and then a rotate of the wrist and then the head turns a certain way. So each person is, is layering that movement to, to get something convincing. So a walk cycle becomes a quite complicated thing to do and so it might be that you're walking and then the whole thing might have to pick up and there's a moment where it picks up and rotates so that you can get the like almost like a matrix matrix moment where it goes and yeah. turns so everyone has to be obviously in sync with that and it's just like any kind of choreography you just know where you're supposed to be yeah Actually, what was really tough for me was not working on it very much because I was, um, oh. it was... It was very much Sonny's project. And uh, at the time, I, he was doing Kong and I was doing Lady Liberty. So all the, while Kong was being developed, I was mostly working on um, Lady Liberty, which was the giant puppet we made for Radio City Musical. Yes. So I was, I was driving that. 
and so Kong was like the uh, being done simultaneously, but that was very much Sonny's baby. So he was doing that one, and I was doing Lady Liberty. And Lady Liberty was that based here as well to the build? We yeah. built yeah, everything. Everything was, was always built here, and, yeah. then, and then shipped out. So we built it. Actually, we built it at the same time as we were doing the figures for the Sochi Olympics. And so at one stage we had um, a Russian bear and the Statue of Liberty in the workshop at the same time. And we thought we could you know, maybe stage some kind of you know, arm wrestle or something. But some anyway, kind of conversation, yeah. 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 But um, it didn't happen. Um, yeah, so that was a very busy period for the workshop because we were doing the Sochi Olympics, we were doing Lady Liberty and it was King Kong happening as well. It was mayhem. And with Lady Liberty, is that a similar sort of thing to a Kong? I mean, is it, how, is, how does much it differ? Much less complicated. Yeah. Much less complicated. And in that case, it was like a giant inflatable torso with some hard sculpted elements, like for the, for the torch and for the forearm. Obviously, we had to shrink it down quite a bit. We had to change the pose to sit on stage. And then uh, it was an all animatronic face. So it had, oh, I can't remember how many servos in the face, controlling the facial expressions and, and the mouth movements. And the way it was set up is that we pre-recorded the face, the, the mouth animation, and then it was live puppetry for the head turns and tilts and eyes and um, blinks and brows and so on. So it was on in, on stage. It was a combination of live puppetry and then hitting a, a preset cue for each line, so she could deliver the line, and then you could make sure your focus was correct because actors tend to wander off their marks. You could then track their fo- track them on stage live, and make little reactions. Unbelievable. Mechanisms, mechanics and mechatronics. How did you find your way, way into it? Because I, as I found out yesterday and, and as we mentioned before, you don't have a Bachelor of Maths or Engineering. You're a teacher and a drama teacher at that. Uh, what was your access point into this kind of thing? One of the things that we came up with it at Creech Technology was the specification is the performance or the performance is the specification. When you work out what does something need to do, what, what you need to build, you work out what the performance requires, like what does the performance demand? That tells you what you need to make. And that's always been the case, that you work out on stage what you need to see. What does the audience need to see? Okay, back up from that, what do I need to do to achieve that? Because if you go the other way, going I'd like to build a mechanism, then it doesn't serve a story-driven purpose generally. It's just like a thing you're doing for amusement. Whereas if you go, okay, I need the audience to feel this, they need to see this in order to feel this emotion or get this idea, you then build to that. So my approach was always working out what the story was, what the character was, and then try and build to match that. That's not always true because sometimes I get obsessed with a mechanism and then that would become the thing. It's a real trap because once you start fiddling with mechanisms, you can get really obsessed with it. Mm. But the problem with that is you end up concerning yourself with something which the audience doesn't care about, nor should they. Like, you know, how you made it, no one cares how hard you worked on it. No one cares how complicated it was. And they shouldn't care. They should be watching what the character is doing. They should be watching the, 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 the piece. So I've, I came at it with I want to create this certain thing and in order to do that I needed to learn more about mechanisms or I needed to learn more about radio control or I needed to learn more about how to make something, how to make a, a mouth move when I can't get my fingers to the control. I, you know, you, the, the puppet would tell you what, what was required and so you just work it out and then talk to as many people as possible who are smarter than you are and take their ideas. You know, that, that basically it's, it's, it's a, we're very fortunate the puppetry community is very good at sharing information. And so if you come up with something, you're happy to tell someone else usually. And so I would ask people and usually they'd be very helpful and you'd just build on that for your character. Is there anything else that you would recommend to people who want to engage in that sort of STEM side of puppetry and mechanisms? Build stuff. Just build stuff. That, um, and not be 
caught up in the idea that there's a correct way to do it. I mean, often there's a sensible way to do it and there's a way it's being done, but that doesn't necessarily mean that your, your story or your character is going to be best served by that approach. Because oftentimes you'll... We go and buy, you go to a, uh, to a, a shop and, and you'd ask for something and say, what are you going to use it for? And you go, oh, I'm going to use it, it's going to be for um, flicking a dinosaur tail and like it's not what it's designed for and they'll get confused because no one's ever tried doing that before. <laughs> and so they go, oh, it's not, that's not, not what it's for. You go, well, it is for me because that's what I'm going to do with it. So <laughs> th- just because it hasn't been used for it or just because that's not what it was designed for doesn't mean it's not going to be perfect for what you want it to do. So I think that having an approach where you're prepared to experiment, to flip things upside down or back to front, to try something different, that's where um, testing and imagination feeds into the engineering side of things. You are listening to Talking Sock with One Orange Sock and Philip Miller. We'll be right back after the break. Make sure you hit subscribe and follow at One Orange Sock Productions on Instagram. More with Philip after the break. This is Philip Miller. I'm Richard Bradshaw. I'm Sue Wallace. And you are listening to Talking Sock. Talking Sock Podcast. The one Orange Sock production. This is the number one podcast for puppetry in the country. Your one-stop shop for all things puppetry arts and practitioners. The number one puppetry podcast in Australia. Follow this podcast. We've been talking about uh, the mind boggle that is making something big in the animatronic world, uh, but now I want to take the scale down a little bit, both in the puppet size and in the budget. <laughs> uh, I want to talk about what you as an independent artist, Philip, um, have done after Creature Technology. So I want to ask you about Puppet Vision and how it began. Puppet Vision actually predates Creature Technology by quite a few years. Mary Sutherland and I started Puppet Vision in 1991, um, we'd worked together on some polyglot shows. She's an amazing builder who'd come down from Queensland and we got on very well. We worked well together and so we formed a, a making partnership and we did a number of gigs together under the umbrella of Puppet Vision and um, that lasted for a number of years until Mary moved back to Queensland and then it's continued as my uh, production company, my independent um, business ever since. And so it's been in the background right throughout that period, even like during um, all the time with Creature Technology, I was also doing independent shows at the same time, doing fringe shows, and before that, things like Tyrannosaurus Sex, which we, we did. Um, a great name! I get laugh at it every time I read it. Well, that was you know, that that you know, it was a few years um, at the um, Fringe Festival and Comedy Festival, doing that show with um, my good friend Derek Rowe. I've done various bits and pieces, like Peter and the Whale was the last larger production we did for Puppet Vision. That was at the Fringe. In 2015, we did it again in 2017. And now it's basically back to freelance work, ads and um, independent work, working with people like Joe Blank at Blank Canvas as an independent maker. So it's whatever comes along, but also keeping my own shows bubbling along. You've got a number of great smaller characters, such as a koala who's named Ken. I'm quite fond of him. And you've approached some builds for small-scale shows with 3D printing and marionettes. Can we discuss some of your more preferred or favourite smaller stuff? Ken, yeah, Ken's been around for more than 10 years and he was um, a, a, in some ways a response to working in kids' stuff where it's all very friendly and light and cheerful and polite. And um, Ken Koala was a reaction to that. He was kind of like um, the, uh, an abusive, grumpy, drunk, miserable 
angry koala and it was a chance <laughs> to get out a lot of emotions and ideas that were otherwise not easy to express. And so that was done through um, crass songs and shouting at people with the koala. And I've enjoyed doing that for many years. <laughs> I find uh, with the f- first kind of puppets that I built, they were kind of like me almost mapping the sort of four or five segments of my brain or personality. And, you know, I've got, you know, one who is the Oka side, one who is basically an, a version of my grandmother. Do you find that some of the puppets that you build independently, like Ken, are an element of your personality? It's very weird to look back at them and going, what was wrong with me or what was I doing? Like, you know, particularly looking at the Tyrannosaurus sex show, you know, which was, you know, the main character that was a, with a penis with self-esteem problems. Um, <laughs> and then uh, an abusive uh, drunk koala and I look back and go, no, no issues there at all. Fine, absolutely fine. Um, but then, you know, Peter and the Whale was, you know, about a little girl exploring the world of the deep and the imagination and her relationship with her grandfather and that was that was a really delightful thing to do, really enjoyed doing that. And so now it's a whole range of other bits and pieces and, and the problem is actually prioritising, okay, which which one am I going to go with next? And, yes, they, they do come out of personal experiences and I'm um, finding I'm having happier ideas at the moment, less about things with self-esteem problems or, you know, broken characters who drink too much, um, much better to do happier things. So that's what, that's the path at the moment. And one of the things about Peter, the puppet, mm. is that, you know, when you approach her and she is currently living um, right next to the front door of the house that I'm living in, you approach her and she looks like she's made of wood, but she's actually 3D printed and, and yeah. she's got this beautiful skin to her, but is very traditional in so many ways, but so cool and new in so many other ways. And we were talking yesterday a little bit about the sort of software that you use to build mm. things like Peter. Can you tell us about those sorts of things that you do when you make? Yes, well, there's, I'm really fascinated with traditional ways of making things and there's a, there are good reasons why puppets have been made the way they are, why marionettes are made from timber, why they're carved, you know, that they last, they're, they're durable. That's, that's been the way for hundreds of years. But I'm also interested in how you can um, make things with contemporary methods, with 3D printing. You can uh, build things that, that would be difficult or slow to build in traditional ways. So with um, with Peter, initially I wanted to have... I had thought we were going to do different expressions for her, like using the techniques that Leica had um, been developing for stop-motion films where you could do multiple faces with multiple expressions. And mm. I thought with a series of magnets and all the rest of it and some very quick sleight of hand backstage, I could actually get a different face onto the puppet. So the idea was to take a very traditional approach to a marionette and then layer it with with other things. So with the, the idea would be I could put different heads on it or different hands or whatever. In the end, that was immensely complicated and unnecessary and so <laughs> she stayed the same <laughs> throughout. But... Uh, it meant that with the f- with the head and the hands and so on and the, and the mechanisms, the way it was built, I could 3D print those much more quickly than I could have if I tried to carve them and it meant that I could do a version, test it, break it, sculpt a new one digitally, print it out, try that and I could work through various iterations much faster. And so for me it was a really useful technique. Also practically you can make incredibly lightweight skulls, uh, incredibly lightweight uh, mechanisms using 3D printing. You can add strength where you need it in a way which is much easier than it is uh, traditionally with, with timber. You have to be quite competent as a carver to do those kind of things and I'm not that competent as a carver. I'm, I'm a better sculptor. So um, it was just a, a practical way to make things. And what do you recommend software-wise to start getting into that kind of I use stuff? ZBrush or ZBrush, depending on who you speak to. Uh, it's a Pixelogic program. It's an amazing digital sculpting program. It's like the Rolls-Royce of, of 
3D sculpting. There's a thing called Sculptress, which is a free version you can get. There are various ones, uh, Sculptor and Forger for the iPad. It doesn't really matter what you use. Uh, the main thing is to be making something. Mm. Um, but ZBrush is, is the best one. It's like it's kind of like the Photoshop. It, it is to 3D sculpting what Photoshop is to um, image manipulation. I mean, what I loved about, I think you showed me Sculptress yesterday and yeah. you had these sort of templates of human heads that you could then sort of manipulate. It was kind of like you were playing, you know, the, the build mode of The Sims with making, you know, the facial changes and stuff like that. And I just looked at how fluid you were in creating that with just simple stylus on an iPad. So the creative process for you could be so quick in that yeah, regard. It's it's like refer to it as digital clay, and it's, sometimes it can feel like that because you can grab a lump of it's a digital lump and just squish it around very quickly. And it has the very handy feature of you, you've got inbuilt symmetry. If you wish to do it, you can just go okay. You got. Um, Symmetry on the x-axis. I sculpt this eyebrow. The other eyebrow is done immediately, and you can work Ooh, very like quickly. That. It's very handy. Yes. And then you can and then you can mess with it afterwards. Like I, um, and there's various other ways you can do it as well. Like I did it with a uh, Mr. Punch head. I was doing. I did a traditional sculpt of that. I then scanned it, then made a digital sculpt, and then I could fiddle with it and make refinements to it and try variations on it. Once it was a digital file, so you can use it. Not just you don't have to start digitally. You can start with an actual object and then manipulate that and change that. So it's just, it's just incredibly versatile and it can mm. speed things up in the same way that working digitally with 2D images can speed up your, your production. I really love the idea of walking up to a client and being able to show something that you've whipped up in a couple of minutes, you know, when they've called you in for an interview or something like that. So, yeah, I think that's a, an asset, that sort of ability to have just something that you can work so quickly with. But you also do a lot of work with your son, Felix. Yeah. I mean, about I think about my dad and as much as I would love to engage with him about accounting, it's the thing I'm least good at. And you and your son work so well together and have collaborated. Uh, you have a, a workshop here. He's done a course at VCA in, what was it again? Production design. Yeah. yeah. And and so can you talk to us about what you've made together? Well, just recently we worked on, a, on an ad campaign together making a little animatronic bird. It was one of those things where we were able to share the tasks. I was doing most of the mechanism stuff. He was doing some finishing and excellent painting. And then on set, we could work well together. And he was doing some of the performing as well as um, you know, the two of us performing together. And I suppose we had a shorthand way of speaking to each other. We, we knew what we were good at. Uh, and he enjoys making. And so we've done a few things together. We did a, uh, a puppet goose for the school spectacular which was very exciting. The, oh, wow, that was you. Yes, and, That's um, really cool. and my um, niece Sophie was the, the goose girl. So it was only because it was one of those neat things, again, the typical Melbourne thing. Um, Sophie had mentioned to the director, oh, yes, um, my uncle's into puppetry. He goes, oh, really? Who's that? And, mm. and it was um, uh, Neil Gladman who was the director and I'd met Neil previously. And so I ended up working with him on doing the puppet for that and then Felix also worked on building that. And we went, oh, this is good. We enjoyed working together. And so we're trying to continue that. So we'll see. It, it may continue. I mean, he's going to go to golf and do other things. But we do get on well enough in the workshop that we can actually make things and uh, it does speed things along. He's a much better painter than I am. I was kind of gagged when I walked up to one of the paintings uh, or artworks in your house and I found that it was actually a Patricia Piccinini original. And you have worked also in the sculpting field as an artist, sculptor, or, or like a sort of an outsourced designer maker for Patricia and yes. also for Ron Muick. Yeah. So I'm just like going to throw that question in there because I think that's a freaking amazing. Can you tell us more about that? Well, I got to work with Ron 
most of your connection through initially through um, Richard, his brother, and I've worked with Richard for years. And Richard was the main sculptor at uh, Creek Technology. We get on really well. He's fabulous. And then I um, did a Churchill Fellowship back in '93. And as part of that, I was visiting various workshops, and I got to go and visit Ron's workshop and work with him for quite a few weeks. And so I was able to watch how he worked, watch his techniques and then shamelessly borrow them to incorporate into my own work. And so when I came back to Melbourne, part of the thing with the Churchill Fellowship is that you're supposed to then disseminate the information you've learned, that you're sharing technical knowledge, you're sharing, you know, the insights you've gained as a result of the fellowship. And so I was happily you know, doing workshops and showing people and getting excited about what was possible with puppetry. And then I was approached by Patricia to build something for uh, a piece she was working on that she had um, her studio was doing digital versions of this this character, the siren mole. It was like a new a new creature. The, you know, the idea was that once we've rendered various things extinct, we'll need to make new creatures. So she had the digital version of it and wanted a sculpted puppet version of it. And so I worked with um, with Sonny, and he did the uh, internals for it. Did the the mechanisms. I did the the sculpt and the painting and the the silicon. And that was installed at the zoo. So it was, I think it was Patricia's first foray into silicon work. And since then she's made that you know, massive part of her her work. Yeah. Um, with Sam Jinx sculpting all of her stuff. He's an amazing sculptor. But uh, yeah, I did I did the siren mole back in 2001, I think it was. And so that was, that was at the Melbourne Zoo for a while next to the wombat enclosure, which was very satisfying <laughs> um, working alongside the wombats. Oh, I think of the fleshy textures that silicon brings to it. it the... I think there's a, a fine line that Patricia draws between kind of being bringing a sense of grotesqueness about birth and child, and also this beautiful innocence to it. Um, how have you brought that sort of idea of these these latexes, these objects, into your other works? You know, like something like the dinosaurs, for example. Um, I suppose if you're making something naturalistic, then you 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 are being inspired by what actually functions in the real world. So with the dinosaurs, I was really fussy about the accuracy of the skeletons and mm. if you work with the fossil evidence and you use what you know to be true from the fossil evidence and you build on that, you're going to have something which is going to look naturalistic because it's based on the actual creature. You see some dinosaur restorations which just look wrong because they've got the bones wrong. You know, they've put the bones, they've put the joints in the wrong places or they've, they've oriented the bones incorrectly. So if you do it accurately, it just looks real. So we would be very careful... Um, Narissa Box was one of the best fabricators at, at Creech Technology and she was very fussy about muscle placement and, and anatomy. So I would make sure that we had the best fossil evidence we could find. Then we would work on, okay, where's the muscle placement? What, where would this muscle lie in, in relation to the joints? And if you put those muscles in the right places, then when the joint moves, the muscle responds as the muscle actually would. And that, that kind of attention to detail informs uh, how the finished product moves and how it looks. So the stuff looks naturalistic when you apply that um, real-world information. And you can take the same thing into the fantasy world. If you want to make it look naturalistic, you kind of, it's a bit form-follows-function kind of thinking that what does it need to do, what would it really need to do in order to work. Sometimes it doesn't matter, but sometimes it's really critical if you want to make, make it look like it really could fly or it really can support its weight on those legs, that kind of thing. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not always important, but sometimes it's, it's for naturalistic stuff it really is. It's just stunning. Uh, looking back through it all, can you pinpoint the big moment in puppetry for you? 
I was really fortunate to do a Churchill Fellowship back in 1993 and that meant I was able to go and visit the Henson Workshops in LA and in New York and Ugh. in London and I visited, I visited Stan Winston's workshop and I worked with Ron Muick and I went to Philip Jonti's um, studio. I had an amazing time. That was wow. uh, like about three or four months touring around uh, the US and the UK and that was massively Influential that 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 changed the way I thought about puppets, about what was possible, and there was that thing too. People talk about finding your tribe. I went to the O'Neill um, puppetry conference and I uh, met Marty Robinson, and it was just like key uh, Sesame Street people, and all these things where you're like these people, it's their life, and I realised it's possible you can make puppetry your life. It's a real job. It's a real thing. <laughs> That's so great. What's next for Philip Miller? More puppet vision projects, chasing work with other people, collaborating with other um, like-minded artists, um, making more stuff is the main thing, being in the workshop, creating things and hopefully a few more weird fringe shows. I pitched this question to you yesterday and I'm going to ask you again because you didn't give me the right answer I wanted to hear, Philip. I want to hear <laughs> the favourite. You've built The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, The Hobbit, King Kong, Dinosaurs... I mean, which is the favourite. These are stories that, and things that children and adults are fascinated by. It sometimes occupies their whole existence. So I want to know which is your favourite. Well, if you look behind you, you'll probably see what's the favourite. It's, it's, it's still the dinosaurs. It's the dinosaurs. Um, there's something about dinosaurs. And also because now my other main focus is photographing birds and being fascinated with birds. And, of course, birds are dinosaurs. And so it's all sort of come around a bit of a circle there. I'm fascinated with dinosaurs now, fascinated with dinosaurs, extinct dinosaurs. There's something about them which is completely engaging and wonderful. And uh, I've got several weeks of sanding to do on my, on my CNC styrofoam T-Rex skull. And I've got, um, I want to do a skating T-Rex. I want to do a real, a, a life-size accurate velociraptor as opposed to a Jurassic Park one. Yeah, all that sort of stuff. I've got tons of dinosaur projects I want to do. Favourite dinosaur is the T-Rex? Uh, yeah. No, not really. No, I kind of like, I like a bit of fun of a velociraptor as well. Um, kind of like an Allosaurus. Um, yeah, a few favourites. But T-Rex is amazing. There's an image on your website, which I think is your logo, but it really looks like it's something out of like an any stop motion animation or claymation yeah. film and it's this, it's this dinosaur holding a puppet in his hand. Yeah. That's puppet vision. Yes, it's a, it's a dinosaur with Mr Punch. So it's, it's supposed to be um, the thing of Mr Punch represents to me traditional puppetry as people tend to think of traditional puppetry and the dinosaur kind of came out of the, the Jurassic Park world of, of realising that, that puppets could be amazing animatronics as well. And I'm interested in all of that, from traditional through to modern through to contemporary techniques. And I like the, the blend, the notion of a, of a very happy dinosaur with Mr Punch was like, you can do it all. You can do all the techniques. You don't need to get locked into one way of approaching it. I love that. And do you think that that puppet might ever get made, a dinosaur holding a Mr Punch? I have thought about it, but I haven't quite got a, a routine for it yet. Um, I might do because I was thinking about a Mr Punch thing but I'm a bit happier now than I was when I was thinking about Mr Punch because Mr Punch is kind of dark. We'll see, maybe. Well, we're out of time, Philip. Thanks so much for talking sock with us today and thanks for listening with us today and make sure you subscribe for more great puppetry arts and practitioner interviews. I've been Pete Davidson, that puppet guy. We'll talk at sock again soon. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. Now we want to hear from you. Each week we'll post a series of questions related to every interview. Join the conversation on Twitter at TalkingSockCast. You can help us bring puppet power to the podcasting world by hitting subscribe, liking our socials and telling your friends. 
Like us on Instagram at OneOrangeSockProductions and check out our episode blog at OneOrangeSock.com. You can support our podcast by pledging to us on Patreon. Your support helps fund our audio mastering, interview transcriptions, and much, much more. Find the link in the podcast notes and earn yourself a shout-out on our socials. Head to our website at oneorangetalk.com or talk to us on Twitter to see how you can show your support. Our music is composed by Elizabeth Maniscalco and our cover art is by Chad Vanier. Without them, this podcast wouldn't be possible. We'll be back next week with another great episode here at Talking Sock.